Thank you, everybody, for coming this morning. Uh, this is a live recording of the Cood Street podcast. I'd like to apologize for that now. Um, because what you're about to see is two people who are bumbling and not particularly competent at this attempt to sit down and talk intelligently with two people who are far more skilled, able, and intelligent than they are. So anything that is... <laughs> any, sort of anything that seems awkward or unplanned is entirely Gary's and my fault. <laughs> and everything else sits to the, the, you know, the great benefit of our two wonderful special guests, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough. No. Yes. And Charlie Jane Anders. Am I going to do that thing? Yeah, you're going to do it. Ah, because okay. that's... Here we go. And now, coming to you from Saratoga Springs, New York, with special guests Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough and Charlie Jane Anders, it's Gary Wolf and Jonathan Strahan on the Coot Street Podcast! <laughs> and we're in Saratoga Springs, so I want to say, and we're off. <laughs> but um, we've been doing a number of uh, podcasts talking about uh, uh, the role of women in science fiction in general, and one of the things that occurred to us at some point during this weekend is that this year is a centennial of two very different but very iconic writers in our field. Um, one is Alice Sheldon, James Tiptree, Jr., who was born in 1915, and Lee Brackett, who was born in 1915, uh, who had very different careers, both mixed genres in interesting ways. And so we have two interesting writers here who have mixed <laughs> genres throughout their entire careers, although Charlie Jane's career is a little bit shorter than Quinn's. Uh, but, I mean... Um, to, 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 everybody knows about the Comte Saint-Germain, which has been, who was here long before the influx of, of, of vampires and is still around now when all those other vampires were relegated to late-night cable. Um, <laughs> but there's also a new um, um, Chester, a new Chester, mystery. Yeah. Uh, mystery coming out, so she's written mysteries. And the thing I told everybody on the panel I'm going to make her talk about uh, the early career of Quinn was as a very promising young, although somewhat dark, science fiction writer. And if you can find a novel called False Dawn... Um, and you can. It's available uh, you know, from Open Roads. Okay. Tell me who wrote the introduction to your first collection of short stories and why. You mean Allie? Yeah. Yeah. Um, she did it because I asked her to. So she was your mentor, not really. Mm. My probably my my, in terms of being a professional, uh -huh. uh, Bob Locke was my mentor. Really? Absolutely. But by Allie, you mean Alice Sheldon? Yeah. I mean, so yes. This, yes. This yes. is the only person in the world who has a short, book of short stories with an introduction by James Tiptree Jr., which is distinguished by itself. And on the other hand, Charlie Jane's first novel mixes genres in a very interesting way that uh, is both science fiction and fantasy, and partly young adult, and partly, and I'm going out on a limb with this because I did it in the review, partly <laughs> a flavor of Daniel Pinkwater. Oh, wow. I love Daniel Pinkwater. So that's oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so relieved. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I adore Daniel Pinkwater. I've got a Daniel Pinkwater fridge magnet <laughs> on my fridge that somebody made for me where they took one of his business cards, uh, which I think says, very important person. It has Daniel Pinkwater, very important person. Mm -hmm. And they... they somehow turned it into a magnet, and it's on my fridge, and I'm like, I'm eternally grateful for that. <laughs> no, I'm a huge oh. Pinkwater fan, and... Um, oh, you know, microphone. 
Um, yeah, and I sort of, you know, it's interesting about my novel because I started out thinking about it as a genre mashup, mm-hmm. sort of. And, you know, um, I started thinking, oh, it's about a mad scientist and a witch. And so, okay, there's going to be aliens, there's going to be wizards, there's going to be dragons, there's going to be elves. And I'm going to have, I'm going to just take all the tropes and mash them up. I'm going to have Harry Potter and I'm going to have Doctor Who and I'm going to have everything. Mm-hmm. And that lasted a couple of drafts. And then I realized that that was just, it was, it was getting in the way of the characters being characters. Mm-hmm. And I, at some point, stopped thinking of it as a genre mashup and started thinking of it as a story about two characters who came from worlds that were different genres. Mm-hmm. In a sense that you know their their worlds were were represented by different genres, and their relationship was about the meeting of these two worlds. But the less and less I thought about it as tropes or genre elements or commenting on the genre as, as a book, like a book commenting on the genre that it's in or the genres that it's in, the more I was able to get into it and the more excited I was by it. And in the end, the sort of genre mashup thing kind of fell by the wayside in a way. Well, there's still elements there. But, I mean, yeah. in Quinn, you're writing... A lot of people are reading, I think, the Saint-Germain novels as historical novels now. Well, they, you know... <laughs> and they are. is right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one of the points. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I call them hi- historical horror novels, because, to me, history is far more, his- you know, horrible than anything that even a very determined vampire can do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, make it a but, matchup between Genghis Khan and... You know, eat ten vampires. I don't care. You know, we know who's going to win that little contest. Yeah, but... We'll be the vampires. (laughs) (laughs) Or or, or in the case of, uh, I guess, the last one was Sustenance, which is Mm -hmm. Vampires versus the House on American Activities Committee, more or less. Pretty much, Uh, And which is worse. (laughs) Um. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and since he's he's basically a good guy... um, his take on things. I mean, it's, the, it's nice to have a character who's got 4,000 years of perspective. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's a way to comment through his ability to compare that makes it, um, you know, gives it context for, for a modern reader. Hmm. Super interesting. I am Duncan. curious, how did you get started writing, you know, writing when you, you know, at the very beginning, you know, when the, before your first novel came out? Well, for the first seven years of my career, I sold short stories, and I'd been writing since I was six. Yeah. So it was by that point, you know, sort of automatic. I mean, I had no doubt what I was going to do with my life because it seemed just, you know, I was hardwired to do it. And whether anything sold ever or anything else, I wasn't about to stop. Yeah. So selling short stories for the first seven years uh, was a way back, because you understand that was in in the late 60s. Sure. Uh, and the way that you tended to establish yourself in a field was through short stories, and then you sold a novel when they finally thought, you know, number one, you're reliable enough mm-hmm. to actually write it, and number two, that you have a, a following that will actually buy it. Mm-hmm. But that's changed a yep. lot over the years. And uh, it's now really, it's harder to sell, sell short stories now than it, than it was back then. Significantly harder. Back then... I mean, we, we were talking to Susie McKee-Shinas mm-hmm. and Pamela Sargent yesterday about their experiences entering the science fiction field, particularly in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So it's a similar kind of period. And it seems like there were a lot of real and perceived barriers for particularly women to get into the field. Oh, it's definitely, it was definitely a boys' game and still is. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, you look around and you, you see 
Yes, there are more women, and they are more recognized for their contributions, but, you know, even then, it's very, very hard to get past the idea that somehow or another, if a woman's doing it, it's a hobby. Yeah. Hmm. And so you have to learn to be professional very, very early and stick to your guns in a professional way, or you'll be marginalized, and it'll be very, very hard to get past that barrier. But if your mentor was Robert Bloch, who was, interestingly enough, another genre mixer. Oh, yeah. Writing science fiction. And also a dear, sweet, and lovely person. And a terrible punster. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. The only thing that would kill you in his house for real were the puns. (laughs) (laughs) And he, uh, yeah, he he was tremendously helpful. And always a source, you know, I would occasionally get to a point where I go, is this, is this for real? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I get a response that would make me go, there's something wrong here. And I'd call Bob and I'd say, you know, something, something isn't right. And I, I would read him whatever it was that was bothering me, that, mm-hmm. you know, the letter from the editor that sounded very peculiar. And he would, he would translate from the editorialese <laughs> and tell me what it was really saying. And he was always right on those things. And, mm-hmm. you know... How, how to respond appropriately. He was really good at that, too. How was it to be socially involved in the field at the time? I mean, uh, again, in the conversation yesterday, we were talking about how you could be quite socially isolated, that you might actually, not as a writer, that you might not stumble across other writers readily at the time unless you were really aware of fandom. Well, I was sort of aware of fandom. I mean, we sort of... There was a group of us who sort of reinvented fandom, as people periodically do, mm. and we would... We, we, we used to get, go to parties together, and we would end up in a corner talking about science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. And so we finally decided, let's not do this at other people's parties. Let's do this a couple of times a month in my living room. Mm-hmm. And so we had a, 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 a fan club. Yeah. And then, then uh, the Worldcon came to, uh, to, to Berkeley, and we signed up to help. And that's how I mm-hmm. saw got into larger fandom. That was the famous 1968 Worldcon yes, where Philip Jose Farmer gave a three-and-a-half-hour speech. <laughs> Actually, 93 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, Charlie, contrast that, what you just heard, with what it's like to enter the field within the last 10 years or so. Yeah, I mean, I actually entered the field about 15 years ago, okay. and... Um, you know, I mean, I was working in journalism, and I was frustrated and bored, and I got this book that was like the science fiction and fantasy market guidebook. It was a giant hardcover, mm-hmm. and it had this the, an introduction that said, you can make, you know, so much money writing short, science fiction short stories. You have no idea. There's so much money. <laughs> and I was like, great. I'm going to quit my job, and I quit my job. And, if you can draw you know, this dog, you can be a... <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it was, I mean, it took, you know, 10 years before I really started selling to bigger markets. Like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, for me, an, a, an early godsend was Strange Horizons magazine, who, you know, were mm-hmm. open to new writers, but also just incredibly, like, they would reject t- nine out of ten things that you sent them, but they were incredibly helpful about it and gave incredibly helpful feedback. And they were just, you know, they were, I, I knew them around from, like, Wiscon and stuff, but they were so, you know, helpful and nurturing in terms of helping me to kind of hone my craft. Were they kind of serving the same role that Robert Block was serving for Quinn, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think to some extent. I also had other people who were mentors, like D.G.K. Goldberg. Uh, the late D.G.K. Goldberg was a mentor mm-hmm. of mine who taught me, like, uh, so much about writing short stories. Um, and, yeah, it was just, um, I mean, it was 
like again, learning to be professional, like mm-hmm. learning to learning to to deal with editors and learning to to handle rejection gracefully. And I have like a giant stack of of rejection mm-hmm. letters at home that I kept. Um, but you know, just yeah, learning to to hear what editors were saying and and be able to deal with it, I think was like a hugely important thing for me. I just wonder, I mean, the being professional was that. Basically, what you were learning, Quinn, because we were talking to Glenn Cook briefly yesterday, mm-hmm. and he was talking about basic things like learning the double spacing, <laughs> meant double spacing between lines, right. not between words. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so that kind of thing actually does make a difference. Well, I, I mean, <clears throat> I knew all that stuff. I yeah. Mean, I, I got the basic kinds of books available about how you submit a man- manuscript and you know, don't do it on two sides of the paper and <laughs> double space and one-inch margins and all that other yeah. standard thing. Um, and uh, But the, as I say, the professionalism was the part that made the real difference. Mm-hmm. And it made it possible to um, at least behave as if I took me seriously. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, and not... I, I, I do think that, you know, it's, it's well to keep in mind that nobody ever writes at their very, very best ever, 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 because there is no such thing as their very, very best. Huh. But you can hmm. write very, very well, and to know when you've reached that level and then be able to let it go is really important. If you find yourself doing six and seven and eight drafts of the same thing, you're probably avoiding something, and it's never going to be perfect, so let it go. When your characters shut up, let them go. Huh. Hmm. And that was one from Bob. Huh. Was he also the one that was saying, if, you, if, if, if you're arguing with a character, the character's the one who's right? No, uh, that's me. You said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I need to write all this stuff so down. you didn't learn everything from no, Bob? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. No, my characters taught me that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But Wait, I, go ahead. But I was also, I was, I was going to say, I, I feel like I should give them credit. I was in a writing, I was also in a, a workshop, mm-hmm. a writing group uh, mm-hmm. early on uh, where, you know, I just got so much critique on, like, I would turn in news stories, like, every month and just get, like, just endless critique. Like, one time, one of the people in the group just circled every single example of the, the verb to be in my story. <laughs> and this was like, you're using this too much. And, you know, things like that, just, like, mm-hmm. joining a writing group, I think, was, like, super essential. But, yeah, learning to think of it as a job, even if you're getting no money whatsoever, thinking of it as a job, as something that you're doing professionally, was, like, super important. But when you're entering the field, you're entering a field where already there is a, what, what I guess what you used to call, a, what you're calling a mashup, is almost standard operating procedure. There are so many science fiction, fantasy, horror, historical things now. <clears throat> and it seems to me qu- when Quinn started, you pretty much had to choose. You were going to be a oh, science yeah. fiction oh, writer yeah. or a horror writer. Yeah, and one of, the, one of the things that made it hard to sell Hotel Transylvania, which is the first of the, uh-huh. of the Saint-Germain books, is that it... You know, the idea of a positive vampire in a historical setting that wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 19th century London was really very, very difficult. <coughs> and, and, you know, because they didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And, well, I, it says there historical horror. And it's sort of like, well, but, 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 we don't know what that is. And, you know, it's, that's a chase-your-tail argument. But yeah, I guess so. How did you transition from, from science fiction into horror? Because you're, as, as we say, your career yeah. now is you've got the world horror. You've got every life achievement award <laughs> you can get. <clears throat> but well, no, I, I, don't, I don't have one from, the, from mystery writers yet. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> uh, or the Western writers. I, I do write you've written Westerns, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> but how did you... Uh, at the time you were mixing genres, it wasn't done. Well, as much. There were pulp writers who could write 
for different pulp magazines. Well, and you had pe- you had people like you know uh, Robert Sheckley who did that, and mm-hmm. and you know even in a very odd way, you know Roger Zelazny was doing it hmm. very effectively. I mean, if you've read Creatures of Light and Darkness, which I think is his was his best yeah. book, and I told him that, uh, and he admitted it was the one that was that was the hardest to write and the most fun to write, mm-hmm. and uh, it's. It, it's a it's a wonderful conglomeration. I mean, it's it's a real toss salad. But, but you know, you have to know what you're doing to make it work. And Roger knew what he was doing. Yeah, but the editors have to figure out what you're doing. Oh yeah, too, but, so but you know, he had he had a couple well, fairly well trained editors, and getting the Hugo for Lord of Light helped a lot. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love the phrase "well trained editors." <laughs> How many of you would like to have one of those? <laughs> Well, and, 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 as I say, Charlie, your experience with, with editors is a different generation entirely. Yeah, and, you know, I've, I've been very, very lucky with who I've gotten to work with, obviously, like, you know, especially in the last five years or so. You know, Patrick Nilsson Hayden has been really mm-hmm. amazing in nurturing my, my career and, and encouraging my writing. Um, getting to write with Sheila Williams, uh, getting mm-hmm. to work with Sheila Williams, Charles Coleman Finley, and mm-hmm. John Joseph Adams, that's been amazing, and, you know. Jonathan Strand. <laughs> uh, well, yes. Yeah, I mean, um, I've, I mean, I've written about this on io9 a lot lately. Learning to grow a thick skin has been super important. Like, not with any mm-hmm. of the editors I just named, but uh, just in general, like getting feedback, getting criticism. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've gotten you know tons of rejections, but also for things that were accepted. You know, mm. um, I. I was thinking about this last night because somebody was complaining about harsh feedback they'd gotten, and I was thinking about how in 2001-ish, I had sold a story to a, a literary magazine that was actually somewhat well-known, and the editor spent an hour on the phone with me, mm-hmm. and half of what he was saying was kind of weirdly insulting and random about my main character, who was it was sort of semi-autobiographical, and he kind of knew that. And the other half mm-hmm. of what he was saying was just incredibly super helpful stuff about how to get to the emotional core of the story and how mm-hmm. to find the, the emotion that I was kind of touching on but hadn't quite gotten to. And I use the stuff he told me about getting to the emotional core of characters and story every day now. And the insulting, weird, random things that he said to me, just, you know, I was pissed about them, but, mm-hmm. you know, that was 15 years ago. And uh, his feedback is still incredibly helpful. We're all wondering what those insulting are. <laughs> 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 well, not going to make weird. you say that. This is something he was legendary for being kind of, you know, a jerk. And I, I also knew that. Exactly. So, you know. <laughs> Quinn, what's your worst experience with an editor? Well, I think the one that, w- that I found the most disconcerting was I'd sent a, a story off to a very well-known science fiction writer and, mm. uh, who was doing an anthology. And the, I got the, the following reject. We don't take this kind of story. That was, that was it? That was it. <laughs> now, and I thought to myself, okay, you don't like stories that have negative endings? Is that it? You don't like stories <laughs> that, that are, have, you know, main female characters? Is that mm-hmm. it? Or don't you like things that are typed on a electric typewriter? <laughs> <laughs> I just, it, it baffled me, and I still have no idea what it was that they were saying, other than no. 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 <laughs> <laughs> mm, useless. So... To circle around to something that we were talking about earlier, do you think, looking back across your career, that it is easier now to be a woman writing in commercial fiction, science fiction, fantasy, horror, than it was in the late 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s? Um, 
marginally so, but the publishing industry is changing so much that, you know, just finding your way through it right now is a little like playing a game in a maze. Yeah. And that, that has its own demands. But I know when I, uh, I was the first female uh, president of Horror Writers, mm. and um, occasion we had two board members who really weren't very happy about that. Really? And one of them would make a point of calling me at 7.30 in the morning, not my best hour, <laughs> and yell at me. And I would occasionally say, you do realize that I'm volunteering. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not charging for my phone calls. <laughs> so why, why am I listening to this? And I finally got to a point that if, if he'd called me, I would, you know, I would say good morning. And if he started to yell, I'd hang up. But, you know, and that was, it, it was, it, there was no merit in what he was discussing. He just wanted to make sure I was intimidated. He was harassing you. In yes, he was. And, you know, oh, and uh, having, having been in the business at a time when it was much harder to get taken seriously and accepted as a woman in the field at all, I mean, this was not news, but it was a little antediluvian, I felt. Was horror a more difficult field to break into as a woman than oh, science yeah. fiction had been? Oh, yeah. Because that really seemed like a boy's yeah, club. It, and oh, yes. And, and, you know, a lot of them you know, still wanted their end, their end of the sandbox to be sacrosanct. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry about that because, A, it's foolish, and, you know, and B, it creates, an, you know, a, a lack of, of cohesion within the profession that every profession needs. Mm-hmm. lost my train of thought. Oh. <laughs> no, it just didn't. <laughs> it's early. It's a, it's it a, is a, early a, in the morning. <laughs> um, do you think that we still need to be pushing to break down those barriers? I mean, I'm curious because we seem to be at a point where there's a lot of conversation about exactly this, mm-hmm. about inclusion, about representation, and yet it's quite similar to conversations that happened in the 70s in the 80s. Well, it's also very similar to the conversations that happened, you know, in 1915 when the suffragettes were standing on railroad tracks Mm. to stop trains from (laughs) going to Washington to vote against women's rights. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's this... But, you know, we're also... We're bucking 10,000 years of history. Yeah. And, you know, that's a big problem. I mean, a lot of what we see, even in things like racism, is xenophobia. Yeah. And xenophobia is as old as our species. But we have to remember that, you know, indeed, we have species in common. You know, we are, we are not aliens to these guys. <clears throat> right. Yeah, actually, one thing I wanted to mention about, uh, about gender in, in publishing in mm-hmm. particular is I think that there's – things are getting a lot better in terms of doors being open to, to women authors. But I think that there's this sort of confluence of, of sexism and ageism that happens a lot where, you know, a lot of my heroes that I was reading – when I was coming to the field, now seem like they can't get published anymore. Hmm. Um, people, I don't know if I should name, name names or not, but I know Tricia Sullivan has been very outspoken about this lately. Mm-hmm. About and Tenneth Lee, we were talking about Tenneth yeah. Lee last night, and when she died, she had manuscripts piled up everywhere that she could not get a publisher to publish. Yeah, well, um, she and I used to talk on, about that. She would say, you know, is there anyone I don't, I haven't approached yet in America? Right, hmm. and uh, we would we would occasionally exchange information like that. And I think that there are older male authors who have an easier time getting more, you know, getting published, you know, after twenty, Probably. thirty years in the business, than their female <laughs> counterparts. And I think that that's actually a real problem that that people don't talk about enough. But how much of the 
sexism and ageism you're talking about, which I think is real, and I oh, agree with you about. How much of the impact on careers is structural change in publishing? I'm no expert in publishing, but you, know, you can see that there's been the death of the mid-list over the last 20, mm. 25 yep. years or so. Yep. And so if you're not a best-selling author or a new author, there's this space in the market where you know, it used to be. I mean, I remember when, when I started going to specialist bookstores. And you'd be able to find mid-list writers who had you know, a full ongoing career, but they were never like the most prominent writer, but they could get their books sold. Mm-hmm. They right. were out there. Mm. And you also had, I mean, say in the 80s, you certainly had books regularly from the 70s and 60s, what, st- the 50s, still yeah. on the shelves. Now it feels like, and I might be wrong, it might be my distorted uh, experience, that when you go to a bookstore, it's going to be bestsellers and a small array of something else and not much else unless you're going to a really well-structured sort of independent or an enormous store. You're right. That, that's definitely a factor. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and um, there is, you know, there is that ageist thing that is, I find very annoying, but of course I would. I'm 73. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I look at all these things, and the belief that somehow it's, it's all, it's all, it all began back when the IRS started taxing the um, inventory, the inventory of publishers, mm-hmm. the same way that you ta- tax you tax the inventory of hardware stores, and um, as a result, they didn't tend to continue to stock your stuff very long, so your shelf life decreased, and mm-hmm. then uh, they, because your shelf life has decreased, your print runs decreased, and then they had the gall to tell you your sales were down. Well, duh. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and that's still going on. And it's very, very hard if you're a midlist writer, which I basically am. Most of what you get is the idea that, you know, it's going to, be, it's going to have a short shelf life. We don't have to promote it. And there's really no reason to um, st- keep the backlist active. And you've got the advantage of basically being a brand name. I mean... Uh, people know a Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough novel when it comes out. Are all the San Germain novels still available? Uh, no. They're not? No. And, and uh, the ones that they have not decided... The interesting thing was uh, Tor had let the, uh, you know, had let the, the contracts lapse on, on about uh, six of the, the novels. Mm-hmm. And then um, they, when they decided to have to do e-books... Mm-hmm. They bought back those rights. <laughs> not, we're not talking big advances here. We're talking, you know, $1,000 for each as the advance. Yeah. But, you know, I'd rather have it than not. But there were other, a couple of the other titles that are associated with it. They didn't take those back. But they bought back the Olivia books. And they haven't brought them out yet, but they, they bought them mm. back. And I'm going, you know, this is very confusing to me. I mean, if you're going, if you're going to buy them back and you're going to have an e-book line... Then where are the e-books? <laughs> you know, just asking. I mean, if there's some, something I don't know, I'd like to be informed of it. How much of this ageist problem is amplified by, and I'm curious particularly, I mean, in, in both your, experience, your experiences, but Charlie's because of where she works at io 9 how much of it is, is amplified by media that's focused on novelty? Yeah, we're all looking for the new, the next. If you get a generation of young readers coming along, they're looking for their people, you know, that they can identify with and you know, bond with. Do you feel like the 
rap- almost rapacious media culture we have makes this worse? I mean, that's a really difficult question. I think that definitely there is, you know, there is, it's easier to make a splash if you're a new author, if, you, if you're making a debut or if it's like the new thing. There's also, you know, there's so many series books coming out that those tend to suck up a lot of attention and that's something that we all have to work against. But it's, you know, I mean, when I'm writing about books on io9, obviously I'm thinking about, you know, what am I excited about personally? What can I get my readers excited about? Like if I know that the new George R. R. Martin is something that they want to know about, I'm going to write about that. But also if there's something that's, you know, I actually, I mean, I have to say from my standpoint, from io9, from, from the, looking at it from the opposite end, it's sometimes harder to get people excited about a new author because they haven't heard of them. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not the new George R. R. Martin and you have to actually kind of push it a little bit harder to get them to pay attention. Uh, but um, I do think that, um, you know, it, yeah, I, I think that, um, I mean, in terms of, like, being consumer-facing, in terms mm. of, like, writing about books for an audience who are just, you know, they just, they don't, they're not book experts, but they like books, uh, it's all about brand names. And so there are certain authors who are brand names, and you can kind of immediately get attention with that. And but one of the things you also do on io9, which I, I appreciate, is, is you do a lot of reading back into the genre so that discovering a writer like Lee Brackett is entirely new to your readers. Right. And it might as well be a new name. So I guess what I'm getting at with that is when you talk about the problem of the mid-list, uh, there are two things that could mitigate against that. One is the availability of e-books, you know, a lot of things like in the Golanx's Masterwork series. And the other is, does genre provide a kind of bulwark against the complete anonymity. Because you talk about mid-list writers disappearing. If you think about mainstream writers mm-hmm. who have one realistic novel that comes out and they get tenure in their MFA program or something, <laughs> <laughs> and they're never heard of again. The book goes out right. of print. In, in the science fiction and fantasy and horror fields, at least there's a chance that somebody like Charlie Jane is going to write a column about the book you wrote 40 years ago. And, and not and not a, not a master's thesis on it. And not a yeah. master's yeah. thesis, no. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the thing that on io9, and I, I, I do this shamelessly, but the thing that on io9 will always get people excited is a list, a list of books, like <laughs> 10 books that will change your life mm-hmm. or whatever. And you can use that. And like what I always tell, when I, I mean, this is completely shameless, but <clears throat> like one of my writers was doing that that kind of article like a week or two ago, and I basically just told them, look, as long as half the choices are, like, authors that everybody's heard of, like, have Asimov and Clark on there, mm-hmm. the other five, if it's a lost list of ten books, the other five can be just books that you want to sneak in there <laughs> that you haven't heard of, that you can get them to pay attention to, and, you know, you can get, like, a, a ton of people to, to know about these other authors. But it's always going to be, like, you know, eight books that will change your life. It can never be eight books that were sort of you know, they're okay for an afternoon over a cup of coffee. Or, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Eight books you can sort of pass on to the kids. Yeah. But I feel like, I mean, I've, I feel like I've included Amy Thompson's Virtual Girl on like three or four different lists of mm-hmm. like books that will do X or Y or Z mm-hmm. at this point because I love that book and I want everybody to know about that book. And I feel like Virtual Girl doesn't get the credit that like a bunch of other cyberpunk you know, AI books get. Mm-hmm. You should all read Virtual Girl by Amy Thompson. It's amazing. <laughs> but I, I guess as well, if you, want, if you want to highlight writers, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about highlighting, particularly women writers. This year, there are at least three or four projects going on or anthologies coming out that highlight diverse groups. The stuff's got to actually be available as well, doesn't it? I mean, uh, the, the strain, there's this odd balance. I mean, I have a, a personal prejudice that says if something's only available in ebook, it's almost invisible already. Huh. Because... Hmm. 
most of the e-book distribution mechanisms aren't really, to my, to my mind, simply browsable. You know, if, if, if we, you're to walk down the street out the front of this building now and walk into a bookstore, the odds are you will stumble across something you didn't know you were looking for mm -hmm. and take it home. There's no good that I've seen yet, you know, rep reproduction of that experience online. So, you know, you, you, you need to have some way to highlight it. And also, as I say, if you're going to do sort of six, you know, six books that are, yeah, they're all right. Um, <laughs> six books that are not as bad as you thought they were. <laughs> or, 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 in fact, you know, say nine books that are far worse than you imagined. <laughs> Actually, probably people, <laughs> <laughs> and they probably people would buy them. They'd be curious. My most popular book article ever on Iona. Well, not my most popular, but one of my most popular was a review of a book from the '70s called *Time Snake and Super Clown*. I don't know if you guys know <laughs> which I got I for that. fifty cents at a used bookstore, and I I just I read it and I was like I have to review this, and like three people will care about my review of it because it's the, this author who only wrote two books in the seventies, and I looked back a year or two later and it had been read by hundreds of thousands of people <laughs> uh, because Time Snake and Super Clown, and it's the, the weirdest book I've ever read. It's it's you know. I mean, the title pretty much sums it Remember up. Remember the author? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something or other. I, I can look it up. But, hmm. yeah. Do you feel, Charlie, that for all of the talk about women in science fiction right now, things actually have changed or are changing? I mean, I, it's hard to tell. I think we're at the beginning of, of a process. And I, it's hard to... I think 10 years from now, we'll, we'll have a better idea of how it's come out. Yeah. I think, I mean... You look at the, that, that chart that everybody's been posting of, like, the award nominees and winners of, mm -hmm. like, the Hugo and Nebula Awards, and, you know, the, the, the percentage is pretty much flat at 20% female until 2010, and then there's this sudden huge spike, and, you know, obviously we're, we're in the middle of a fight over that right now, um, which we shouldn't get into, I guess, because mm -hmm. uh, we'll be here all day, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, I think we'll ask again in 10 years, yeah. I think that we're starting to see like a real change. I suppose I ask because the conversation we were having, which you, you didn't hear, so it's unfortunate, um, yesterday, <laughs> was that there was a feeling that the gains that were made in these pushes to promote women in, in, in our genre uh, tended to be gains that were lost regularly and had to be fought to, 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 to sort of to, to achieve again, mm -hmm. and yet when I when you, I listen to you, Quinn, talking, what, what I get is more of a feeling that at least some of those beachheads are held. Yeah, that, that we are actually beginning to get further forward. Well, for one thing, a very good thing that happened along about oh maybe somewhere between two thousand and two thousand five, the number of women active in fandom went up radically. You know, it's like all of a sudden, girls said, hey, we can be fans, too. And so the idea that femme fans, you know, were a rarity disappeared. And I think that made it a little easier to push the point that, hey, come on, you guys. If you're going to let girls into the clubhouse, you're going to have to give them some awards occasionally, too. <laughs> right. And I think that is a really important point, that the, the diversity of fandom has, has been a huge thing, and not just gender diversity, but other kinds, too. But, you know, actually, it's, it's true that, you know, around the same time that the Hugo Awards started being less male-dominated, I was at a Worldcon, and there had been all these articles hand-wringing about the graying of fandom and how Worldcon is, you know, just older men or whatever. And I was at this Worldcon. I forget which one. It was... 
might have been, I don't know, anyway. And I was suddenly just noticing that I was surrounded by teenage girls and young women cosplaying and running around and having a good time. And I was like, okay, so the graying of fandom and the whatever of whatever, you know, maybe slightly less to worry about there than we thought. Um, you know, I think, it, yeah, fandom, I think if, as fandom changes, the field changes. I think that's always true. And what, what's it like at world horror conventions these days, Quinn? Because... It seems um, to me that's been a harder uphill battle in well, some ways. Well, it was partially because, you know, horror as, as a genre was marginalized for so long. Well, that's true, too. And, you know, so the idea that it's actually making a point of defining itself brings it to a different level just by that. It says, you know, this is, this is not just a kind of creepy fantasy, even though as much of it is, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's something, it is something that you can distinguish from fantasy or science fiction. And the thing about horror, and, and I say this because I like writing horror, is that you can do it in almost any other genre. You can do horror as a mystery, you can do horror as science fiction, you can do it as fantasy, you can do it as westerns. I mean, you know, there's nothing to stop you. It's, it's, it's ambiguous, and its ambiguity gives it a, trem- a tremendous range, and I like it for that. But uh, yes, the idea that somehow or another women don't know about these kinds of creepy things... Oh, yeah? <laughs> well, this is a completely unfair question, but somebody in the audience can Google it while we're talking. How many other women besides yourself have received Life Achievement Awards from World Horror? I think one other, I believe. Tanith, perhaps? Or? Yeah. Okay. In fact, th- I had to go to the, 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 um, the horror convention in England to give it to her because they didn't want a man to give it to her. <laughs> <laughs> They imported a woman <laughs> to hand over. <laughs> They're yep. sitting on the ground. <laughs> right. I said I was the only the only one that would qualify. So mm-hmm. it was, and of course, since it, it made it a lot of fun, since Tanith and I were very good friends. You made you make an interesting point though about, and, and Brian Aldous has made the argument that horror is a market but not a genre, in the sense that it is a mode. It is yep. something you can do in any other kind of fiction. Yep. It doesn't have to involve supernaturalism. Although I know there were debates about yep. that at one time. Uh, and, is, 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 and, and as, as you say, you're writing mostly historical fiction yeah. now. Uh, and some of them are not horrifying in the Lovecraftian sense of... You know, no, I have this problem with, can I, my problem with Lovecraft oh. is that he is so afraid of anything that comes shambling out of the sea. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, since, since I live, you know, right near a really, a really big body of water called the Pacific Ocean... <laughs> Um, I know what you do when something with tentacles shambles out of the sea. You get a great big pan, you get some olive oil and some butter and some garlic, <laughs> and you saute it. Yes. <laughs> somebody, somebody told me that years ago that he was, he had a, he must have been terrified by calamari when he was a kid. Because <laughs> <laughs> all of his monsters look like that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You ever want to write uh, horror, especially after today? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've tried my hand at it. It's you know, I've never, I've never quite gotten the knack, but I'd love to try it again at some point. Mm-hmm. But do you feel like it's just something you could do with any story? I mean, it's you know, it, uh, uh, who goes there is one of the great horror stories, oh, but yeah. it's not, it's not usually included in no, the horror. No, but, but it certainly yeah. is, yeah. and you know, and it's like when people say it has to be, you know, supernatural. Well, look at Psycho. There's nothing supernatural in it, and it's one of the creepiest things that anybody ever wrote. Mm-hmm. 
And it's also one hell of a movie. But didn't Bloch make a distinction between supernatural horror and what he called terror? Uh, yeah, but then we, we used to argue about this. This was something we, we would spend really wonderful times debating back and forth. Mm -hmm. The Greeks said that terror is fear of the known, which means if you're about to be run over by a bus, you're terrified. <laughs> um, but if... But horror is fear of the unknown. So if you're lying in bed and there's something scritching on the window that ought not to be there, then you're horrified. And horror, horror always has, according to the Greeks, um, an element of fascination because it's unknown that doesn't exist in terror. Make of it what you will. It, it makes for a lot of fun d debates over dinner, I can guarantee it. <laughs> I love that. Anne Rice won the life of Chester. Thank you. So... Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Ellen Datlow and Anne Rice have both won Bram Stoker Lifetime Achievement Awards, so we've been corrected by the audience. We should have an audience every week because we, <laughs> we make so many dumb mistakes when it's just the two of us talking. It takes weeks before we're corrected. Um, I'm not sure they're available at 8 o'clock in the morning on that's Chris true, time. That's true, How are we on time? Oh, we're, we're fine. We, oh. I mean, we, we'll probably in about five or ten minutes we'll get some questions from the audience, Good. perhaps, okay. if, if, you, if you have any. But, <laughs> but we're doing just fine for time. Um, I'm a little bit curious with both of you. I mean, I, I've heard a lot of discussion of feminist science fiction, but almost no dis discussion of feminist fantasy or feminist horror. But surely both must exist. Oh, yeah, they do. I don't think... And I, I say this because I you know, grew up in and lived for a long time in, in a university town. Mm. Uh, I don't think the academics have discovered us quite that way yet. Uh, the, uh, you know, ICFA, uh, which is an academic conference that is disguised, disguising itself as a convention, um, <laughs> they give papers and uh, they uh, discuss genre fiction. And I'm glad they're there. And they're, but they are just waking up to horror in particular. Yeah. And the other thing they're just waking up to, and I'm very glad they are, is they're finally taking romance fi fiction seriously. Because that's a very viable uh, you know, genre, and it mm -hmm. is addressing an audience that is very specific. And it has some uh, very well-established tropes. And why? You're not getting PhDs in this. I'm damned if I know, other than intellectual snobbery, of course. <laughs> well, there's also too much to read. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, 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 are you a member of the romance writers? Do you go to that? Uh, no, I'm not, but I, a couple of my very good friends. Well, yeah, yeah, and I've got a friend who, who yep. lives down the hall from you who goes to that, and they have, subs, they have more categories than the Grammy Awards. Um, but they have categories that include supernatural horror, and mm -hmm. supernatural romance and, and science fiction romance and fantasy romance, yep. and those books seem to be completely invisible to those of us in the science fiction and fantasy community. Well, you know, it's about, the, A, they're about women, mm. and they're about emotional relationships for the most part, and which is something that tends to make, especially science fiction, male readers run like hell. We should mention, just as a footnote to ICFA, since I go there every year, that there's a small organization within it called the Lord Ribbon Society, yep. which has given you awards, yep. which has entirely been run by women from the beginning. Oh, yeah. That's you know, Elizabeth Miller's brainchild. Yeah. Yep. So, the, so there is a fairly well-organized, whether it's feminist or not, but certainly a well-organized um, Female horror fandom. Yep. Or fem fans. Is fem fans still a word? 
No, not anymore. Okay, it's, it, well, it's a little déclassé now. Okay. <laughs> but, but as far as feminist fantasy goes, I mean, I guess I always thought of fantasy as having a, you know, a huge feminist component to it because I, you know, Ursula Le Guin had a huge mm-hmm. impact on me. I know she, it's like a tough t- topic now, but Marion Zimmer Bradley, uh, you know, the Chicks and Chainmail anthologies mm. were, were huge <laughs> when I was growing up. Um, and, you know, I was telling you guys last night that the, the book that really made, made me feel like fantasy had something due to offer and that I wanted to try writing fantasy at some point was, was Kushiel's Dart by, mm-hmm. by Jacqueline Carey, which is you know, such a strong feminist book, and such a has such a you know a great hero, who um, you know d- deals with so much and is is you know has so much agency that I just that was that was the book that really made me think you know of fantasy as, as, a, as a kind of a a vital exciting genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was thinking that this this is another generational thing. Um, because when, when when you were starting, you didn't have those books. You had Jarell of Jarari, maybe. Yes. Uh, there there were some strong women oh, out yeah. there. Uh, but uh, but they were pretty much in the pulp magazines at that time. Um, a lot of them were, but you know you were also getting um, you know when like Vonda McIntyre was coming into the field, mm-hmm. and and you know very definitely uh, feminist agenda, and. Um, you know, I, I I found myself one of the things that, that I wanted to do when I started writing science fiction was to have uh, female characters and places I thought females ju- usually tend to be, mm-hmm. and therefore you know should be participating. And it, it, it you know I wasn't doing polemics in that sense, but you know since I'm a feminist, mm-hmm. many of my characters tend to catch that from me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, do you think this might be a good time to throw ourselves open to some questions from the audience, if they'd like? How are we going to do this and get it recorded at the same well, time? Well, why don't I see if I can go out there with the... Uh, For those microphone. of you out there in radio land, Jonathan is now grabbing the <laughs> microphone and heading toward the audience <laughs> so we can get some interesting questions. I don't normally move around during this, so we'll see how it works. Kevin, did you have your hand up walking and talking is no skill of okay. mine. Oh. Uh, okay. um, I just... Uh, one quick comment with... Uh, 20 years ago when Amazon first hit line, I was doing computer design and I, I looked at Amazon and said, there is, is still no mechanism for discovery of books better than a bookshelf. Mm-hmm. 20 years later, that's still true. Mm-hmm. And I think that this mm-hmm. is a massive failure of imagination on every e-retailer's part and you should all be ashamed of yourselves. <laughs> I, not, no one here is an e-retailer, but uh, you, all you e-retailers who are in the Cood Street audience should be ashamed of yourself. You mean you distrust the Amazon algorithms? I do. I tr- distrust them so hard. <laughs> I had a. I, I, I used to do Christmas shopping on Amazon, so I'd buy the toys for the grandkids, mm-hmm. and then I'd occasionally buy a novel. And once I was trying to, uh, well, I was searching for Elizabeth Hand's Available Dark, which is a very mm-hmm. grim noir murder mystery, and. This thing popped up that said, people who bought Available Dark also bought Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> that could be Pro- true. It could be true. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, let me see if I can get this over into the audience without strangling Garth Nix. <laughs> Here, let me just move over and make it easier. Um, so one of the things, though, that 
e-publishing has seemed to have done is provide an opportunity for new authors to attract the attention of publishers. And I'm thinking in particular of Andy Weir and The Martian, which started as an e-book and then by word of mouth got picked up by a publisher and we've just recently had the feature film. Can you talk a little bit about um, opportunities for new writers in e-publishing in the current <coughs> I'd like to talk about that because I've, I just recently had to answer a bunch of, a bunch of questions about this. Um, a lot of people think that if you publish something online that somehow or another it will magically attract readers. It won't. What you do is you have to have it, you have to find some way to reach the public, which is why you must have an online publicist. The other thing you must do, absolutely must do, is get an editor, a real editor, not someone who says, I know how to edit, or, you know, your, your, your granny who's very good at punctuation. Uh-uh-uh. Find an editor who knows how to edit a book. Edit mm -hmm. the manuscript, <clears throat> because there's stuff up there that, you know, the spelling's terrible, the punctuation makes no sense whatsoever, and the structure is messy at the very best. And that's not going to sell. It's going to run into trouble, and it's going to make it difficult for the person who put it online to find a serious publisher elsewhere in other forms. And no matter what you do, you know, yes, it's not always pleasant to go through the process with an editor, but you've got to grit your teeth and go through it, because otherwise you're not going to get, as it were, a saleable product. And that's how publishers think. They think of product. Okay. Um, question over on the other side of the audience. So I don't have to we can physically damage some other people. <laughs> so, yeah, one last question. Um, I feel that we're living in a golden age for YA literature. And mm -hmm. YA has a lot of openings for women as writers, as characters, as readers. My question is, do you think that YA is sort of a gateway into science fiction and fantasy, or is it a completely different genre that's going to develop into something different? Wow. Um, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a complicated question. I mean, you know, to some extent, I, I'm going to answer with the same thing I said about one of the other questions, which is we'll see 10 years from now. I mean, a lot of the, whether the people who are reading YA now as, as young readers will graduate to reading science, other science fiction and fantasy. I also think increasingly YA is not distinct from other science fiction and fantasy. Like, I think that it is, it just is. Like, I think a lot of books that would have been published as, like, ace doubles back in the, you know, the 60s are now being published as YA books, and that's just the format. It's a different format for the same material. But I, I hope it's a gateway. I hope that uh, people who read Hunger Games will eventually you know, discover Le Guin or, or whatever. And I think that we'll, we'll know more, hopefully, in five, ten years. Well, science fiction has always been wide open as a YA field. And um, I've done five YA novels, so, you know, I've, I've nibbled around the corners. And the thing that you can occasionally get out of, it, out of it is name recognition that will carry over when they grow up. If they liked you when, you when they were 15, they'll like you when they're 25. But you can't depend upon it, mainly because, again, this is a, an error in publishing. They don't cross-market these things. You know, they say, here is this slot for this kind of book, and this is where we market it. We don't market it anywhere else, even if the person is well-known in other areas. The only exception to that is, of course, if you've got somebody who's got a, a very successful film from in another genre, 
or a very successful TV show in another genre. Then they will cross, you know, cross promote. But it's it's very blind of the I think to assume that people who like a particular reader won't follow them you know, author won't follow them into other genres because my experience is they mm-hmm. do. I think it's worth mentioning also, and, and you kind of alluded to this that. Uh, most science fiction novels published prior to 1970 could be read as YA today, and some of them have been abducted into YA. I mean, oh, yeah. Flowers for All Jahan oh. is taught in middle school now, <laughs> Fahrenheit 451. Yep. Uh, and for that matter, Charlie, the first third of your novel is terrific YA. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I mean, then they, they, then yes. they grow up, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> yeah. I do want to say, mean, though, before we cast publishing as sort of Rick Moranis' Darth Helmet, slightly <laughs> mal- malign and moronic, you know, we are also dealing with a bunch of people, people who are trying to, produ- to distribute many, many titles every month, over oh, yeah. and over again. Well, yeah. There's an endless energy behind them, pushing them, and this force. And so the, their ability to craft every single one is limited. That's why you, have, you end up find, hiring your own publicist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I was, I was teaching about the thing about promoting yourself and about self-publishing. I was, I was teaching at Clarion West a year or two ago, and I, we, somebody had also given a talk about how you should all just be self-publishing. And I was like, you know, there's always going to be gatekeepers. You don't eliminate the gatekeeper by getting rid of the publishing industry. You mm-hmm. just set up a different set of gatekeepers because then you have to – Amazon becomes more of a gatekeeper. But mm-hmm. also you have to reach readers somehow, and you have to get your stuff reviewed somehow. You have to – like there's always going to be gatekeepers because there's yeah. just so much material out there. And people I know who work in traditional publishing we're, are pretty we're, we're, good we're, gatekeepers. We're um, being told that we're done. Yeah. Okay. So we've got just do, do we have time for one last question. Very quickly. One last question. S- super quick for Ms. Yarborough, and it's unanswerable. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Across the course of your career, have you noticed any change in the sort of reading experience your readers are hungering for? I know that's a tough one, but it's a, one I'm genuinely interested in. Um, since I don't know what all my readers, who they are and what they read, um, I don't know. Uh, I'd like to. I'd like to. If, if, you, if you find out, let me know, okay? Okay. Well, we are completely out of time yes, now. With that, we are done. We'd like to thank you all for joining us today on the Cood Street Podcast. And We'd like to thank Chelsea Quinn. We'd ask you to... Charlie Jane Anders. Thank the, the wonderful Joseph Quinn Yarbrough and the marvelous Charlie Jane Andrews. This has been the Food Street Podcast. Thank you. <laughs>